Well, for those of you who have been with us um, in this series, you know that we have been dealing with the great theme of justification by faith alone in the book of Romans. And Paul has been laboring um, this point in a wonderful uh, and uh, systematic way. Now, he first introduced the idea back in chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, For in it the righteousness of God, referring to the gospel of Christ, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. A reference back to Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. And so Paul has shown us that justification is only by faith. Justification, that is to say, a man standing with God, how he can be made right with the Lord is only and uniquely through the faith of God, exercised back toward God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he has spent chapters 3 and 4 really laboring that point, giving us several examples, and in chapter 5, showing us the many benefits, the purse of benefits that come to the one who has been justified by faith, peace with God, access into his very presence, standing in grace which is firm and can never be removed rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, that we will see him and be with him, be partakers of his very glory, rejoicing in tribulation, even hardship, we understand, has a sovereign, ordained purpose in our lives, which is to make us more like Christ, to make us dependent on him and less on ourselves. And, of course, hope and joy in the Lord himself. All these are marks of the Christian, the one who has been justified by faith in Christ. In this section, in, in verses 12 through 21, we now have this uh, comparison that Paul is making between two heads of humanity, Adam and Christ. Adam being the head of all humanity. Uh, really, the idea is that of a representative, one who represents a people. And Adam represented all of us. And what we've learned in this section so far is that Adam, through his one sin, brought Sin, condemnation, and death to all those who are in him. That is, all those who are earth-born, those who have been born of this earth. That's all of us. His sin infected us like a disease. It passed through all mankind. But Christ, as the other head of humanity, all of the heaven-born, those who have been born again, born from above, he represents a new humanity, a new group of people, those who have been redeemed by the grace of God. And all of Christ's action, his action of righteousness, his life of righteousness is now applied to all who are in him. So that in Christ we have justification through his righteousness. We have life in his life. So all of the curse of sin and death that was in Adam brought to all of us has been reversed and much more. Now we have life and life abundant in Jesus Christ. And so that's really been the theme we've been looking at in this section. The action of the one head affecting all of the humanity that he represents. The head re represents the body and impacts the body. Now, we've seen something of the structure of this section which for me personally and I hope for you as well has been very helpful this section, if you read it as a, a unit, can be confusing to follow the logic. But I think as the way that it has been outlined um, has proven helpful. And so what we've seen is this, that in verses 12 through 14, we have the condition of humanity in Adam as a result of his one sin. Um, in the end, at the end of verse 12, we have this statement, because all sinned. That's the idea of imputation. All sinned when Adam sinned. And so verses 13 and 14 explain that statement, all sinned, all sinned. How do we know that all sinned? Because until the law came, that is to say until Moses, the lawgiver, came, men died. From Adam to Moses, people died. That is the proof, that is the evidence that all sinned in Adam. That's the reason why babies can be born in this world and die without having done any deeds yet. 
because of the sin of Adam that has been imputed to them. That's why men and women and children can die even though they haven't committed the same sin of disobedience that Adam committed. That particular one, death reigned from that time, that period from Adam to Moses. That proves that we all sinned in Adam. And then in verses 15, 16, and 17, we have a second parenthetical remark that really explains the last statement in verse 14, which is this, that Adam is a type of him who was to come. And that refers to Jesus Christ. Adam was a type. He was a picture, a shadow of him. There's something true of Christ in Adam that we see. And what is that? It's this, that both were heads of humanity. Both represented a people. And what the one did affected the many under them, that idea of federal headship. The president of a nation, when he makes a decision, it impacts all the citizens that fall under his jurisdiction of that nation, right? Same idea here. So we have the, the uh, similarity and really more so the contrast of how Adam is only a type. He's not exactly Christ. Christ is not equivalent. He just is a shadow of Christ. The differences are really what call Paul's out in verses 15, 16, and 17. And so what we saw in verse 15 is that Christ's gift, which is his righteousness, that he earned by living a perfect life of obedience, is far greater than Adam's offense. And we saw it in three ways, that it was his gift is greater in quality. Christ's his work is fundamentally a work of goodness. Adam's was a work of evil, sin. We saw that Christ's work was far greater in quantity, a whole lifetime of active obedience and passive obedience, always obeying the Father and yielding himself even up to the death of the cross where he took our sins, our punishment upon himself. And then thirdly, the effect, the end of the work of Christ brings life, abundant life to all who are in him, whereas Adam's work brings death to all who are in him. Verse 16 the contrast was Christ's gift is far greater than the result of Adam's offense, which was judgment. In other words, the application of Christ's work is much broader. While Adam's one sin condemned all of us, our many sins went on Christ, were punished in him, and brought justification of life. His work is much broader in application than Adam's is. And then we also saw, secondly, in verse 16, that it's the judge's verdict that has actually been reversed. We had a verdict of condemnation pronounced on us by the judge of heaven, and that verdict has been changed to justified because of the work of Christ. In verse 17, we saw yet a third contrast of how Adam is only a type of Christ, and it's this. Christ's gift is far greater than Adam's offense in power. Adam's work had power. It brought death to all humanity. It poisoned the stream, the fountain of all humanity that was potentiated in him at the beginning. <clears throat> but Christ's work not only reverses death, but brings life and abundant life for all of us. And so we started looking last week at what it means to reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And I mentioned that there are really two senses in Scripture that we see in which we reign in life through Jesus Christ. We reign in him in a sense now. There is a now element to this. And there is also a future glory element of this. Last week we looked at the now element. And just by way of quick recap, we looked at the fact that we've been raised from the dead spiritually. Spiritually. The veil of unbelief has been removed from our eyes and from our hearts. So that when we look in the scripture, we see Christ as the center of it. We see him as our Lord and Savior who died for our particular sins. We believe. That's how we know we've been brought from death to life and that we are reigning in life. We also saw that the devil's power of death is gone for those who reign in life through Christ. And that power of death is really the power of accusation. He is the accuser of the brethren. He brings accusation of our sins and says, look, this sin deserves death. But thank the Lord, his accusations no longer stand in the courtroom of heaven because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who pleads our case. I died for his sin. I died for her sin. And so those accusations no longer stand. The um, power of death that the devil had in that sense is gone. We saw thirdly that our fear of death is removed. 
that Christ died to release us from the bondage that every man has of the fear of death, whether we're willing to admit it or not. He has died to release us from that, and so we no longer fear death. Number four, we saw that we've been freed from the power of sin. This is the dominion and the reign that we have in this life now. This is the, the life of sanctification that we're going to be looking at really in, starting in chapter 6 of Romans. That sin no longer has power over us. We now, by the Spirit of God, have the ability to say no to sin in a given moment. We're no longer tethered to sin. We've been cut free. We've been loosed from the prison. The stronger man armed has come in and dispossessed the strong man who is the devil. Christ has dispossessed the devil, has bound him in this sense, and has freed the captives so that we can go forth now and serve him in liberty. But brothers and sisters, there is more to this reign in life. And that's really where we left off last week and where I'd like to pick up this morning. There is a future reigning in glory that all of us will experience a future reigning in glory. And I'd like to just give you three points to consider this morning and meditate on as we think about how we will reign in life through Jesus Christ. So here's the first. Reigning in life means that physical death is merely a door to life. Physical death is merely a door to life because Christ loved us. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That's death. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death shall not have dominion over us, brothers and sisters. When you close your eyes in this world, you will open them immediately in the presence of the Lord because he has loved you. He will not allow his Holy One to suffer corruption. That was a, a prophecy of Christ, but it's true of all of us who are in Christ. We will not be allowed to suffer corruption. Though our body go into the ground if the Lord tarries, he will raise us from the dead one day bodily. But even before that, this moment of passing from this life to the next, it's a doorway to life. It's a doorway to life. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. And this deals with what we would call the intermediate state. There's not a lot in Scripture that is given us on this intermediate state. Um, intermediate meaning between the time that we die in this world and when the last day happens, the resurrection of the dead happens, this intermediate state. Listen to this. We are confident, 2 Corinthians 5.8, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There it is. To be absent from the body is immediately to be present with the Lord. Your spirit will be alive and well and present and conscious of what is happening immediately after you close your eyes in this world. Here's another passage, Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But I live on in the flesh. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better a desire to depart and be with Christ. Not to depart and wait for the resurrection at the last day, but to be with him immediately. And he's hard-pressed because he knows that it's needful for the Philippian church that he remain with them in the flesh to minister to them. But he would rather be with Christ. It's a gain. There are some uh, who have taught what's called soul sleep, the idea that when you close your eyes in death in this world, um, you lose consciousness and you just sleep. You're unaware of what's happening until the resurrection of the dead. That's not taught in Scripture. In fact, 
these verses that we're looking at here are really the, the hallmark verses to consider for this intermediate state. Um, Revelation chapter 4, 5, and 6, those chapters, they give us a wonderful picture, an insight into the heavenly scene of what is happening right now for those who have gone before us, the souls of the saints who are in glory. What we will experience the moment we die. That's a picture that we see in Revelation 4, 5, and 6. And what we have there is a picture of the redeemed, all the redeemed, who are worshiping before the throne of God and before the Lamb in His presence. And they're singing the song of the redeemed with loud voices. They're worshiping Him and they're falling down before Him. And so there is consciousness, there's joyfulness, there's singing in the presence of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is awaiting all of us when we close our eyes in death the moment we pass from this world. Praise the Lord. So physical death is merely a door to life because Christ has loved us with his everlasting love. Secondly, reigning in life also means this. We will be raised from the dead physically because Christ rose physically. You're going to hear a theme as we go through these. And the theme is always in Christ. What happened in Christ? What happened to him happens to us. Think about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ here is referred to as a firstfruits. That is a, a first installment, a pattern of those who would follow after him. And what's the pattern? That he was raised from the dead bodily. He received a glorified body. We also will receive a glorified body as those who come after him. David says in Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. In your likeness. There is a glorified body that David was anticipating seeing the Lord with. That is true for all of us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's a great mystery about this, brothers and sisters. The scripture says that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In, the, in a moment of time, in, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last blast of the trumpet, we will be changed, raised incorruptible, never to die again. Patterned after the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. Job says, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. The grave is not the end of the story, praise the Lord. He will raise us bodily. Think about all those who have been uh, killed in wars in various ways. The Lord knows how to reconstitute bodies no matter what has happened to them so that they will be glorified and wonderful just like the Lord Jesus Christ. Physical death is a door to life. We will be raised from the dead physically because Christ rose physically. This is all part of the reign of life that we shall experience. Thirdly, this, reigning in life also means even the world to come will be subject to us because we are in Christ. Even the world to come will be subject to us because we are in Christ. The author to Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 5 says, for he, referring to the Lord, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. And so that begs the question, well, to whom will it be subject then? And he goes on and he says, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Quoting from Psalm 8. Or the son of man that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. All things. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Why? Why don't we see man 
having dominion over all things as he was created to do at the beginning. The creation mandate for man was to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it after a godly manner, patterned after the Lord because he was an image of God in the earth. And he was to have dominion over all things as the Lord has. And Adam was that first representative. He was the pattern for all of us to have dominion. But when he sinned, when he disobeyed God, he fell and he lost that dominion. In fact, death became the dominator over him. And that's why we don't yet see all things put under him. He was no longer crowned with glory and honor or set over the works of God's creation, but instead he became filled with shame and fear as he turned away from God and pursued his own path. That's why Jesus Christ took on flesh. That's why the incarnation happened. He became a man, the perfect man, that he might obey everywhere that Adam and all of we fail. He is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8, this man who for a temporary time was made a little lower than the angels. He subordinated himself to his own creation. He became weakened intentionally by taking on flesh in order that he might adequately represent us. And because he did, because of his perfect obedience, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, which is what? The name Lord. Jesus is Lord. He now has dominion over all things for both himself and, don't miss this, for all his people. If you are in Christ, you also have dominion and will have dominion over all things. Let me just give you an illustration of this. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, starting in verse 13, Daniel is having a vision of the Son of Man. Son of Man is a title for Christ. It's a messianic title. In fact, Christ claims this title for himself in the upper room discourse in John uh, chapter uh, 14. Um, in John 13, I believe, excuse me. And Here's what it says, Daniel 7, 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so here we have a picture of the Son of Man, which is looking forward to Jesus Christ himself, who is coming with the clouds of heaven. In fact, he's being brought to the Ancient of Days. So the understanding is this is after the, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and he now ascends to the Father. He's brought to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion, to Christ, and uh, glory and a kingdom that all should serve him. And that kingdom lasts forever. Now, here's the connection with his people. Look at verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is remarkable. Not only does Christ receive the kingdom, but that kingdom is also shared with us. It's given to us. In Romans chapter 8, we are called co-heirs, co-inheritors with Christ of all things. By grace, he shares his reign and his glory with us. Hmm. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, John writes this, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood 
and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He has made us kings and priests. Kings, those who have perpetual dominion. Priests, those who have access, unlimited access to God. He's made us kings and priests. This is a picture of reigning. We are reigning in him. And you say, well, with regard to kings, what is this perpetual dominion over in the future glory? I mean, we talked about how there's a dominion that we are given now over sin. But what about in the future glory? And Revelation chapter 5 gives, gives us some help in that. In Revelation 5, again, we, we have that picture of the heavenly throne room and all the saints worshiping before the Lord represented by the 24 elders and they are singing the song of the redeemed. And you read in verse 9 of Revelation 5, and they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign where? On the earth. On the earth. This is looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth where God's people will reign with Christ in him. This is the reign of life that is yet to come. This heavenly Jerusalem that comes down that we read about in Revelation 21, that's the new earth that he speaks of on which we will reign. Hmm. So Christ rules and reigns the kingdom has been delivered to him, and by grace he shares it with his people, with the saints of God. This is grace, immeasurable grace. So even the world to come will be subject to us because, <clears throat> because we are in Christ. The world to come will be subject to us. Brothers and sisters, is our best life now? <laughs> I mean, I hope you see it is really to come. It is awaiting all those who are resting their hope fully in Christ. Now, I'd like to get back to um, our text, Romans 5, and pick up at verse 18. That was really finishing up verse 17 from last week, uh, considering the reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. In verse 18, Paul makes a concluding, summarizing statement. He uses the word, therefore. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, or literally through the righteousness of the one, is what the Greek says, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And so what is Paul doing here? He is summarizing and reinforcing the teaching he's given us from verses 12 through 17. And I want to show you how this verse 18 connects really back to verse 12. Um, we've seen uh, a, an opening statement Paul makes in verse 12. Therefore, a new section uh, distinct from the previous verses, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through, through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And then, again, he takes 13 and 14 as a parenthetical thought to explain the back end of 12. Then he takes 15, 16, 17 as a second parenthetical to explain the back end of 14. Now he gets to the concluding thought. Now he's finishing his statement by recapping and concluding. And here's the connection. In 12, just as through one man, now look at 18, even so through one man. As through one man, Adam, sin and death entered the world and all died in him. Even so, through the righteousness of the one Jesus Christ, in 18, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now, the ESV, NASB, and New King James all have some words that they add to the Greek, the original text. In the ESV, it reads, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to. So led to, leads to. The NASB uses the terms there resulted and there resulted. The New King James says judgment came. Those are italicized words. That's not in the original resulting in, resulting in, and the free gift came. Actually, what does the Greek text say there? It says something very simple. It's this. Therefore, 
as by the offense of one upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one upon all men to justification of life. I'm calling attention to this because it impacts the emphasis that Paul is making in this verse. What's the emphasis? It's this. The work of the one representative, Adam and Christ, upon all his own, his people, his, his, his people, his constituents that he represents. The work of the one upon all. Condemnation to one group in Adam, justification to life for the other group in Christ. This is the concept of imputation that was introduced back in verse 12 when the text says, because all sinned. And that's how we understand that text. Imputation. What was true of Adam has been brought now to us. And what was true of Christ has been brought to us. So the question that I was asking after looking at this text, and the question you might be asking is, why, Paul, are you re repeating this concept again after repeating this so many times in verses 12 to 17? I mean, it seems like he's going to great pains to help us uh, see something here in this concept of, of, of imputation. And he is. This is what I hope to show you today. He wants us to understand something. This is Paul's way of underlining, highlighting, <laughs> putting exclamation points and saying, Pay attention to this. It's important you understand this concept because all of Christianity hangs in the balance with this one idea. It really does. It differentiates Christianity from every other false system of belief in the world. Do I have your attention? <laughs> it has mine. Look at verse 19 now, and this really helps explain because Paul starts with the word for in verse 19. For is an explanatory word. He's going to explain the therefore concluding statement of 18. And here's what he says. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Um, the ESV, NASB, New King James, they all use this idea, or use these words, many were made sinners. Made. In the Greek, it's the word kathistimi. It means this to set down in a class or a category. It's a legal term. It means to designate, to appoint, to constitute might be a helpful way of thinking about it. It's a legal declaration, which would make sense, right? Because this whole section we've been reading in chapters 3, 4, and 5 is all about justification, which is a legal term, a declaration. What's the declaration? God regards us as forgiven, our sins are removed because they've been put on Christ. And it doesn't stop there. His positive righteousness has been imputed to us, given to us, accounted to us by grace. Nothing that we do. That's the idea. It's a legal term. God regards us as having never sinned. When he looks at you, he sees you as sinless, as though you had never sinned. If that doesn't take your breath away, I don't know what will. Kathistimi, to set down in the class the category of something. Let me give you an example where this word made, kathistimi, is used. Matthew 25, 21. This is the parable of the talents. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you, I will kathistimi you, ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. In other words, I will appoint you, I will legally consider you a ruler because you've been faithful in a few things. See, here we are all put into the category of sinners by God. We are regarded as sinners by God. We were made sinners. That's a, a passive tense in, in, for the word. It's something that happens to us. We were made sinners. Every man born in this world, with the exception of Jesus Christ, because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was not in the line of Adam. That, that was broken for him and him alone. Every man is legally constituted a sinner because of that first sin of Adam. This is what the text is teaching. That's the reason why we are born sinners and why we sin. The origin is we were constituted, we were declared sinners when Adam first sinned. In him, in his loins, if you will, when we were not yet even born. God constituted us sinners because of the work of another, Adam. 
Now, I'm not saying, and the Scripture doesn't teach, that God makes us sinners. We have to be very clear about that. God does not sin, and He does not even tempt others to sin. So that's off the table. But what is on the table is this. Because God appointed Adam as a federal head over a humanity of whom we were all a part, Adam, when he acted and sinned, he acted for us. And so we sinned in him. So God is simply, and note this, he's declaring us sinners by virtue of another, by Adam's sin. This is so important to understand this concept, and I am going to spend a little time laboring this because this really is, is something that we must understand, must understand. God puts us into the category and class of sinners because of what Adam did. Now, why is this so important that Paul is saying this? Because of the second half of verse 19. He wants us to understand the same concept now applied to those who are in Christ. Listen to this. So also by one man's obedience, Jesus' obedience, many will be made righteous. It's the same word. So we have to carry the same meaning from the first half of the verse in Adam to the second half of the verse to those who are in Christ. In other words, so also by one man's obedience, many will be regarded legally as righteous. Legally regarded as righteous. Again, the passive tense is used. This is something that happens to us, brothers and sisters. We're not talking about sanctification yet. We're made righteous. It's not sanctification. That's coming up in Romans 6, 7, and 8. He's still on the theme of justification. This is a legal forensic term that he's using here. Here's the key. We were designated sinners through nothing that we did ourselves personally. Let that sink in. We were designated sinners by God through nothing that we did in and of ourselves, but only through the work of another, through Adam. It was Adam's work of disobedience that changed our status to sinners. And if that's the case, then Paul is saying that we are also designated righteous through nothing that we did ourselves personally. In the same way, it was the obedience of another, Jesus Christ, that constituted us righteous, put us into the class of, the category of a righteous person. In Adam, sin, condemnation, and death happened to us. In Christ, righteousness, justification, and life happened to us Brothers and sisters, question, what did you do to be constituted a sinner in Adam? Nothing. What did you do to be constituted a justified person, righteous in Jesus Christ? Nothing. Nothing. This is the main idea. I mean, if there's one idea for this section and for uh, this, really, verses 12 through 21, it's this. Just as we were constituted sinners by Adam's disobedience, so we are constituted righteous in Christ solely based on his obedience. That's the great truth here. It's imputation, and it runs in two directions. The sad part is for those who are in Adam and who remain in Adam. They're in death. The reign of death is their life. They're unbelieving. They're blind to the truth. They love wickedness rather than righteousness. They know about God, but they reject him. They hate him. They live for their own glory, their own passions, their own pursuits, that is the reign of death personified. But those who are in Christ believe in him. They're believing, actively believing, ongoingly believing, looking to him in faith, repenting of sin, trusting in him alone. That's the reign of life. Hmm. So uh, here's the message. This is all God's doing. Salvation is of the Lord, right? That's why there's no boasting and God will not permit boasting in his presence. It's excluded completely. Why? So that he gets all the glory and man gets none. <laughs> this is why Paul addresses this letter we've been reading to the saints who are in Rome. Not to the sinners who are in Rome. Because our status has been changed from sinners to righteous by God alone. This is how he sees you and me in Christ. Amazing truth. We are now saints, we're sons, we're in Christ. We are in the one who is himself the beloved, and so therefore we are beloved of God as well. 
Do you see why this doctrine of imputation is so, so important? I mean, it totally excludes the possibility of human works as any part of salvation. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is God's business. Um, He settles it in the court of heaven, independent of us. We are only recipients, either of condemnation in Adam or justification in Christ. And this is what I meant when I said Christianity is set apart from every other religion and belief system in the world. In this, man's works play no part of our salvation. And is this not caustic and hard on the ear of the natural person, the ear of the flesh who doesn't have a spiritual understanding? I mean, people want to do something to earn their way. They don't like the idea of someone else doing something for them. They want some glory. They want to boast. And the question that I'm sure many of you are asking, and one that certainly came into my mind as I was considering this text is, what about our faith? What about our faith? I mean, hasn't been Paul been teaching that we are saved by faith in Christ alone? I mean, you, you would look back at a verse like Romans chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul is going to reference Genesis 15, and he says, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It certainly seems like Abraham did something here to be counted righteous. He believed God, right? Isn't that a work? Isn't that the faith that causes God to save us? I mean, isn't that the thing that we must do in order to get saved? You've probably heard language like that a lot. What about Acts chapter 2 when Peter is giving his sermon and he's addressing um, his countrymen, the, the ethnic Jews, and he says to them, really in the culmination of this sermon, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. And the text says that they were cut to the heart. And they cried out and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? We want to do something. We're cut to the heart that we've put our Messiah on the cross. What can we do about that? Peter's response is, repent, be baptized, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission, the forgiveness of sins. That sounds like something to do, right? Works, repent, be baptized. Into what understanding? That Jesus Christ alone can forgive my sins? But consider this, and we've referenced um, these, these verses a few times as we've gone through, actually through Romans 3, 4, and 5, but just to refresh us on this, 2 Corinthians 5, 20, and 21. Just turn there with me for a moment. 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5, 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And let me ask you a question. Whose work is in view here? God's work, but of him, right? He has made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Our righteousness is totally a work of God, according to these verses where, where are the, the works of men here? Where's, where's faith even in this section? Consider Romans, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1.30. This was our um, text this morning that we read. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. Jesus himself is made for us, becomes for us the wisdom of God. He becomes our righteousness. He becomes our sanctification, our holiness. He becomes our redemption, our our final glorification, all of salvation. Christ, Christ has been made for us, but how? Of him, of God, are you put in Christ Jesus Whose work is in display, on display here? The work of God. Again, 
The work of men or, or even faith is not a part of this discussion. Now we go back to Romans 5, verse 19, our, our text, and we consider this verse again now, Romans 5, 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Where's faith there? Do you see what he's doing? He's, he's highlighting the fact that salvation is truly all of the Lord. We were constituted sinners in Adam. We're constituted righteous in Christ based on the work of another, Jesus' work for us, no longer Adam's work for us. So what is the role of faith in? Well, I think Mr. Spurgeon, our brother, had it exactly right. I put a quote in the bulletin for today. Did you happen to see that at the lower right? Spurgeon's quote was this, It is not thy hold on Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not even thy faith in Christ, though that be the instrument, it is Christ's blood and merit. Amen. <laughs> that is scriptural. That is right. Um, scripture says we've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The grace of God abounding toward us and brought to us by the work of Christ alone. That really is how we are justified, how we're made right with God. Independent of our work has nothing to do with us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. What's not of yourselves? Faith and salvation overall. Your savedness is not of you. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, God will not permit boasting in his presence. Who was it that revealed the identity of Jesus Christ to Peter in Matthew 16? When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who revealed the identity of Christ? Who gave the faith to Peter to recognize Christ? It was God. It was God, just as he does with us. He opens the door of faith to us, brothers and sisters, so that we can see with eyes of faith this is the greatest miracle that can ever happen. This is the, the new birth, regeneration, where we recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Belief in Christ is a gift of God. So is suffering but belief is a gift of faith. And I think in evangelical Christianity today and for many years now, we have tended to overemphasize our faith and underemphasize the sovereignty of God in the matter of salvation. It's one thing to urge someone to believe the gospel, and we should. We are, in fact, as we just read, ambassadors for Christ. We're pleading with men. We're urging men, be reconciled to God. Today is the day of salvation. There is a day of grace it's open. Don't harden your heart as Israel did in the day of provocation when they would not heed the word of the Lord and God allowed them to die in the wilderness. Don't be like that. So we plead with people, every man, to be reconciled to God. There is a, an urgency to exercise faith. But if we don't teach this important doctrine of imputation, brothers and sisters, we are robbing God of his glory. And if we overemphasize our faith, that can certainly lead to boasting, can't it? It's my faith that saves me. No, it's not. It's Christ who saves you. Faith is just the instrument that he uses to connect you with his salvation, to exercise it. And everyone who has been constituted, appointed a righteous person sovereignly by God, guess what? You will be given the gift of faith and you will exercise it back toward him. That's our confidence as we preach the gospel, isn't it? I'm preaching the word of God and I'm trusting that God is going to work his work of grace and faith in the hearts of his own who hear. He accomplishes all his good pleasure with his word. Whether it is in the salvation of sinners or the condemnation of sinners, he is glorified either way. So faith is the means. It's not our faith that saves us. It's Christ himself who is called the author 
of our faith, the author and finisher, the originator and completer, perfecter of our faith. So you think back to Acts 2 and that sermon of Peter and that response that Peter gives of repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And yes, that's right. We must be called to repent and to believe. That's the, gospel, that's the gospel call. That's what John the Baptist and Jesus Christ first preached when they came on the scene. Repent and believe the gospel. But our faith is not what causes us to be saved. Note this. It's not what causes us to be saved. It's just the instrument to connect us with the salvation he's already purchased for us. It's Jacob's ladder, if you will, that has been let down from heaven. Heaven has been opened. The ladder has been let down so that we may, by God's grace, climb that ladder. Every effort of man apart from Christianity, every effort of man to um, save himself, to achieve nirvana or whatever that final state of bliss is, is an effort to prop up a ladder that climbs up to nothing. Heaven is not open to them. The ladder is not long enough. It's only in Christ that he opens heaven. He lets down a ladder that's sufficient and he brings us to himself. He connects us with his salvation. So exercising faith rather than being the cause of our salvation is actually the evidence of our salvation. The evidence that you have been purchased. Let me repeat that just one more time. Exercising faith rather than being the cause of our salvation is actually the evidence of our salvation. It's an amazing truth, amazing truth. The Lord puts a group of people upon whom he has sovereignly and independently set his love through nothing in us into the category of righteous and justified based on the work of his precious son, Jesus Christ. And I need to clarify, I'm not saying that Christians don't do good works. We must, they're essential, but they're essential as an evidence, as a fruit, as an outworking of the new life that we already have in Christ because he has brought us to life. He has caused us to be born again. Um, Another thing that we have to keep in mind is that we are never saved on our own, meaning this, not on our own apart from Christ. We are in Christ. You know, the term for Christian in the New Testament that is most often used, we discussed this on Wednesday night in our Bible study, it's not Christian. That term is only used three times in the New Testament. The term for a Christian that is used most often is in Christ. That term is used 250 times in the New Testament. Our identity is in him. That is so important, and we'll see this as we go forward, that what happened to Christ happens to us. When he died on the cross, we were crucified with him. When he rose from the dead, we rose spiritually with him, and we shall rise physically from the dead following his pattern. When he was ascended and glorified and seated in the heavens, we also were seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're in him. We have to start thinking of our lives as being in him in every respect. This is what it means to be a Christian. Some might ask, well, what if we sin? This is great to hear that um, we're constituted righteous. Can I lose that status? Would God put me back into the class of sinner and not righteous anymore because I do sin? I mean, brother and sister, what, which of us here would say that we have no sin? If you did, you'd be called a liar. Right? We all sin. But let me ask you this. If God puts us into the class of a righteous person based 100% on the work of his son, Jesus, then, and 0% on our work, then why would God put you back into the class of a sinner when you sin? He wouldn't. He's fully pleased and has accepted the work of his son for you. And that will never, ever change. Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is established, settled in heaven forever. Uh, Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace of earth purified seven times. In other words, what God says, his word can never change. If he has legally declared you, constituted you righteous, he's never going to change that verdict to guilty again. You've been constituted righteous. You always will be righteous. We are the righteous, though we sin, brothers and sisters. 
Christians are not perfectionists. We, stri- we strive for it, but when we sin, the mark of a Christian is that we hate our sin. We love righteousness. That drives us to repent. We are convicted by sin. We can be stubborn. We can. Look at David. He was stubborn for a period of time, but he sent to Nathan to bring him back to himself through repentance. That's the mark of the Christian. We turn to Christ. Hmm. We get stuck on this issue and question our righteousness, our standing with God. And we get stuck for this reason, because we're looking more at ourselves than we look at Christ. We're looking more at ourselves than we look at Christ. In other words, we see our sin and our circumstances as bigger than the great infinite resource we have in Jesus Christ. This passage we've been looking at today in Romans is designed to turn that on its head, to reverse it. To help us to see the infinite grace, the abundant grace that overflows to every one of us in Christ. Do you see your sin this morning? That's a good thing. Conviction of sin is a good and healthy thing. Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn. Mourn. Over what? Over their sin. Why? For they shall be comforted. That's why they're blessed. Because the Lord is going to use that conviction to bring them to happiness in the Lord, knowing that their sins are all paid for in Christ, turning us back to Him, looking at Him again. We must remember 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of Him are you in Christ Jesus. I don't put myself into Christ. He's put me into Christ. And because of that, He's made for me wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. When Satan tempts us to despair like we sang about this morning, and tells us of the guilt within, where do we look? Not to self. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. The Christian is one who is always turning to the Lord, looking up as a pattern of life. That's what it means to reign in life through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, does this doctrine of imputation help you with assurance of salvation? That's what it's designed to do. This whole section is about assurance. These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is your Savior, that your work has nothing to do ultimately with your salvation. It's Christ's work. It's his declaration upon you. And you know that it's been applied to you. How? Because you believe. You trust by faith. You repent as a pattern of life. You follow him. You obey. Not perfectly, but that's the trajectory, the pattern of your life. Hmm. This is a huge boon to the assurance of salvation. This is what it means to have eternal life, brothers and sisters. And this is eternal life. To know you, Jesus speaking to the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know Christ and what he's done for us is eternal life. We've entered into that eternal life now. He's teaching us about his person, his work. Why? That our confidence would be totally in the Lord and not in in ourselves. That gives us assurance. If you have it, you will never fall away from it. And if you do fall away from it ultimately, you prove that you were never one of us to begin with. Simple. For those of you who may not know the Lord but are hearing the word of the Lord this morning, I would make the same appeal to you that Paul made to the Corinthian church and for those who don't know Christ. We are ambassadors as we hold forth the word of life. Hear the word of the Lord. Be reconciled to God. What are you waiting for? You've heard the word of truth. Every moment that you delay from receiving this word and believing this word, you're just heaping up wrath, the wrath of God against yourself that one day will be poured out upon you unless you repent and believe the gospel. So I urge you this morning, believe the gospel. And for those of us who are saved, brothers and sisters, rejoice in, relish in your God, his salvation, his work. He holds us fast. We're not going anywhere. We will continue to walk by faith to the end by his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word and for these wonderful promises of God which are all yes and have their amen in Jesus Christ to the glory of God. He is the um, perfect 
uh, one who has come and fulfilled all righteousness, who has fulfilled your purpose for mankind as the one who would obey you, the one who would do all your good pleasure. That's what you have delight in, Lord. Not in what we can bring you, not in some offering uh, of our own, but really just in a recognition of your son and his offering that it was perfectly satisfactory in every way and pleasing in your sight. And Lord, we trust, we trust in him. We trust in his work for us. And because of that, we are in him. And we share in every blessing in Christ, reigning and ruling with him now by his spirit, having victory over even our sin, over the fear of death, over death itself because we will open our eyes in life and we'll be raised bodily from the dead. Praise the Lord. You've done all for us. Lord, may our lives be a living sacrifice laid down for you. We're no longer our own. We're bought with a price. Help us to walk in this newness of life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.